0: Hello and welcome to Rupture Radio, a weekly podcast looking at news, politics and culture from a socialist perspective. This week we have a, a different episode than normal. It's an audiobook version. Uh, um, I have an excerpt from a talk from 1975. Uh, so we've gone back into the history books here. This is a talk uh, that I really enjoy. Uh, it's called The Liberating Influence of the Transitional Programme. And this is an excerpt that deals exclusively with what's called the Ludlow Amendment. Um, the talk is by George Brightman. He was a Marxist uh, uh, author and theoretician of the American Socialist Workers Party um, in the nineteen, well, from the nineteen thirties all the way to the seventies to the and the eighties. And in this, he talks about the transitional programme, which is a a method that socialists, and particularly Trotskyists, talk about, of trying to connect your day-to-day struggles uh, for reforms and improvements in conditions and living standards. How do you connect that to the bigger picture image uh, and goal of the fight for socialist transformation of society? So he's talking about that, and he in particular talks about a discussion and a debate that happened in the American SWP in the 1930s around how to relate to the Ludlow Amendment. Um, There's a lot of lessons and overlap here in Ireland, in terms of how you relate to, to the demands for neutrality, um, for opposition to, to to joining NATO, for a referendum uh, to ensure Irish neutrality, um, but there's more generally lessons about how do socialists relate to day-to-day struggles um, around demands that may not be explicitly socialist. They may be. Uh, it's struggles that come up around individual or partial measures. Um, but how do we relate to that and how do socialists integrate into those movements um, and maintain a unique socialist perspective? So it's a, it's a useful excerpt. It's a good talk. Um, I will throw in to the chat a link to where you can read the full talk by Brightman and others. Uh, it was part of a three-part series. And I'll also put in a link to an article in the latest edition of Rupture uh, by Diana Dwyer, which also looks at the question of the transitional programme, its relevance for today. Um, and I would urge you to to read that as well. Without further ado, I'll go over to the audiobook version of an excerpt from The Liberating Influence of the Transitional Programme by George Brightman, looking at the Ludlow Amendment. In the 1930s, as the American people began to learn more about World War I, partly through the muck congressional investigations, and as the threat of World War II began to come closer, a considerable anti-war or pacifist sentiment developed in this country. One of the forms this took was that of so-called isolationism, an expression of a desire not to get involved in foreign wars. Beginning in 1935, the Stalinists attempted to exploit this anti-war sentiment by channeling it behind Roosevelt's foreign policy and the policy of, quote, collective security according to which war would be prevented through an alliance of the peace-loving countries, the United States, USSR, etc., against the bad, aggressive, peace-hating countries, Germany, Italy and Japan. In 1935, a Democratic congressman from Indiana named Ludlow introduced a bill in the House to amend the US Constitution so that Congress would not have the authority to declare war until such a declaration had been approved by the people voting in a national referendum. Of course, the bill had many loopholes, one of which was that this limitation on war-making power of Congress would not apply if the United States were invaded or attacked, and this wasn't its only weakness. Support began to build up for the amendment as fears of war were deepened in this country by the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in 1935, the Spanish Civil War in 1936, and the Japanese invasion of China in 1937. The Ludlow Amendment was reintroduced in the House in 1937 and in the Senate by La Follette of Wisconsin and finally came to a vote in the House in January 1938, nine days after our convention. The Roosevelt administration was bitterly opposed to the amendment and used all of its patronage pressures to bring about its defeat. The Communist Party also opposed it, charging that it was in the interest of the reactionaries and fascists because it would limit the ability of the US government to deter the fascist power from starting a war. Just before the vote in the House, a Gallup poll showed 72% of the population favoured the Ludlow Amendment. Most of the new industrial unions supported the bill, along with the National Farmers Union. The pro-Ludlow sentiment in the UAW was so strong that the Stalinist members of its executive board were forced to vote in favour of it. The bill was defeated 209 to 188, a rather close vote considering all the circumstances. So far I haven't been able to find any reference to the Ludlow amendment in our press before the vote in the House in January 1938, but without any specific articles in our press I knew at the time what her position on the amendment was, and I approved of it wholeheartedly. Before explaining what her position was, I shall have to make a correction of what Comrade Hansen said about it in 1971 in a speech included with introductory matter in the Transitional Programme book. After telling who Ludlow was and what his amendment called for Comrade Hansen said, Comrade Trotsky proposed that the Socialist Workers' Party should offer critical support to the Indiana Democrats' proposed amendment to the bourgeois constitution of the United States. After a bit of hesitation by some comrades, a party adopted this position. Trotsky considered the matter so important that he included a paragraph about it in the transitional programme, end quote. I'm afraid Comrade Hansen must have relied on his memory here instead of checking the facts. Perhaps he didn't have access to the records when he was making the speech, but in any case, he doesn't have it right. The fact is that we were opposed to the Luttrell Amendment before Trotsky had any opinion about it. If we had a member of the House in ninety, um, If we had a member of the House on January 10th, 1938, he would have voted against the amendment after making or trying to make a revolutionary speech differentiating the SWP from the non-revolutionary forces opposing it. And if you had been a sympathiser in 1938 asking me why we were opposed, I would have answered at length along the following lines. Quote, Passivism is one of the most pernicious elements obstructing the revolutionary struggle against imperialist war. It misleads and disarms the workers, delivering them defenceless at the crucial moment into the hands of the war makers. Lenin and the Bolsheviks taught us that implacable opposition to passivism and the illusions it creates is obligatory for all revolutionaries. All the documents of the left opposition and the fourth international stress the principled character of the struggle against pacifism in all its forms. Our stand on this question demarcates us from all other tendencies. The Ludlow Amendment is a pacifist measure designed to create the illusion that it is possible to prevent war at the ballot box while leaving power in the hands of the capitalists. It would misdirect workers from the real struggle against war and therefore we cannot support it or assume any responsibility for it. Not to oppose it would be a betrayal of our revolutionary principles. End quote. On the same day that the House voted down the Ludlow Amendment, the newly elected political committee of the SWP held its first meeting. The PC minutes of the date show that under one point on the agenda, Burnham proposed launching an anti-war campaign consisting of eight, quote, concrete points. The eighth point read as follows, quote, For the Ludlow Amendment on the general motivation of the opportunities which it, as an issue, provides, end quote. All of the eight points were approved except the eighth. Which was defeated by a vote of six to one. A counter motion to the eighth point was made by Schachtman as follows quote, That in our press we criticised the Ludlow Amendment and the pacifist agitation connected with it from a principled revolutionary standpoint. End quote. This was carried six for one against. In accordance with this motion, our paper, The Socialist Appeal, Carried a front page article by Albert Goldman, introduced with an editorial statement pronouncing it to be quote, the Marxian view on the amendment. End quote. Goldman's article began by saying that the Ludlow amendment poses an old problem in a new form for Marxists and workers generally, but he assures the readers, quote, it is only necessary to apply the accepted principles of revolutionary Marxism to solve the problem correctly, end quote. Applying them, he showed all the shortcomings of the Ludlow Amendment and the pacifist illusions fostered by its advocates, demonstrated that it would not really prevent war, differentiated our position from that of the Stalinists, and pointed the destruction of the capitalist system as the only solution to war. I might add that he also said the Ludlow Amendment carried even greater dangers than other pacifist schemes, precisely because it added, quote, and Element of democratic procedure. Also, in accord with the PC motion, were two editorials in the next issue of our magazine. The longer one, which could have been written by Burnham, denounced the pro imperialist forces that voted down the Ludlow bill and explained why. The shorter editorial, which could have been written by Schachtman, sought to, quote, represent the standpoint of revolutionary Marxism, end quote. Among other things, it said, quote, where pacifist nostrums are not outright frauds and deceptions, they are pernicious illusions which drug the masses into pleasant dreams and hallucinations and paralyze their fighting power. To teach the masses that they can prevent war by a popular referendum is to foster a disastrous illusion among them. Like the panacea of disarmament or international arbitration courts, the referendum illusion diverts attention from the need of an intransigent class struggle policy against war every day, in the year, because it cultivates the idea that the real war danger faces us in the remote future. The masses will be able to avert it by mere casting of the ballot. In sum, to support the Ludlow Resolution is to inculcate in the minds of the workers the idea that war can be prevented or fought by some means other than class struggle, that imperialist war can be averted otherwise than by the revolutionary socialist overturn of capitalist rule." End quote. The PC minutes of February 18 have a point called Ludlow Amendment, followed by by this information, quote Letter read supporting Burnham's position on the Ludlow Amendment, end quote. Not included with the minutes and not identified as to the author, this letter turns out to have been written by Trotsky, although it was signed Hansen for security reasons. Its text will be found in the second edition of Writings thirty seven thirty eight, which should be out next year. The letter was addressed to Cannon, whom Trotsky gave permission to show it to Burnham if he wished. Cannon did, and he also turned it over to the political committee as a whole. The letter said that on the Ludlow question, Trotsky was with Burnham, not with the majority of the political committee. He felt that after the congressional vote, the question was settled practically, but wanted to make some comments on the important question of methodology. The government position against the Ludlow Amendment, Trotsky wrote, represented the position of the imperialists and big business, who want their hands free for international manoeuvring, including the declaration of war. What is the Ludlow Bill? Quote, it represents the apprehension of the man in the street, of the average citizen, of the middle bourgeois, the petty bourgeois, and even the farmer and the worker looking for a break upon the bad will of big business. In this case, they name the break the referendum. We know that that break is not sufficient and even not efficient. And we openly proclaim this opinion. But at the same time, we are ready to go through this experience against the dictatorial pretensions of big business. The referendum is an illusion, not more and not less an illusion than universal suffrage and other means of democracy. Why could we not use the referendum as we use the presidential election? The referendum illusions of the American little man has also its progressive features. Our idea is not to turn away from it, but utilise these progressive features without taking responsibility for the illusion. If the referendum motion should be adopted, it would give us, in case of a war crisis, tremendous opportunities for agitation. That is precisely why big business stifled the referendum illusion. Today's average SWP member will not find Trotsky's thinking on the London Amendment extraordinary or controversial. In fact, it may seem rather commonplace and hardly worth the time I'm giving it. This testifies to the political development of our movement since 1938. In certain respects, we have come a long way. We live on a higher political plateau now. But what seems simple now to a new member didn't seem at all simple to the politically most astute leaders of our party then, as we can see from what happened after Trotsky's letter was read by the political committee. Trotsky thought that because the referendum had been rejected in the House, nothing more could be done about it. The members of the political committee knew better, realising that the amendment would continue to be an important political question for some time. So they decided, after hearing Trotsky's letter, to formulate their position anew. Goldman introduced a series of four motions, some of which were amended by shakman The first two motions stressed the need to use the interest aroused by the amendment to expose the war preparations and the bourgeois and Stalinist opponents of the bill and to expose all passive solutions by clearly stating at all times that whoever says any kind of referendum will stop war is seriously mistaken. The third motion declared that we cannot assume responsibility for the amendment under any circumstances and it is impermissible for us or our members in mass movements to organise or participate in or endorse any campaign for the amendment. Up to this point, it's clear and consistent. Goldman's fourth motion, however, says that since the amendment has been adopted by the most progressive forces of the labour movement, since the working class learns through experience, and since we need to be closely connected with those forces, our comrades in the mass movement are instructed to vote in favour of the Ludlow Amendment and introduce pro-Ludlow clauses in anti-war resolutions, quote, at all times making clear our position on the amendment, end quote. Shackman disagreed with Goldman's point four and amended it to instruct our comrades to state our specific position on the Ludlow Amendment, either orally or in writing, and to abstain when the vote is cast. Instead of stopping there, however, he added an exception. In those exceptional circumstances where our comrades hold the balance of power between the Stalinists and Patriots on one side and the pro-Ludlow forces on the other, our comrades were instructed to defeat the Stalinists and Patriots by casting their vote for the Ludlow Amendment with the qualifications given above. And this was the position adopted by the SWP on February 10th. By 5-2, to two, cannon was absent to abstain except in special circumstances where we should vote in favour in order to defeat the Stalinists and patriots. And although the political committee held other discussions on anti-war work during February, this was and remained the SWP's position when its delegation went to talk with Trotsky the following month. In the back of the second edition of the Transitional Programme book, you will find the stenogram of the discussion in Mexico about the Ludlow Amendment. There we can see Shackman especially, who is the chief formulator of the abstentionist position, although, of course, the political committee as a whole was responsible for it, still dragging his heels. Quote, There is a great danger that in jumping into a so-called mass movement against war, pacifist in nature, the revolutionary education of the vanguard will be neglected. At the same time, not to enter the movement leaves us mainly in a propaganda position. End quote. And at the end, returning to a point he had made in the February magazine article, he asks, quote, How do you distinguish between our support of the Ludlow Amendment and our attitude towards disarmament programs, international arbitration, etc.? End quote. Trotsky's answer, quote, they have nothing to do with one another. The Ludlow Amendment is only a way for the masses to control their government. If the Ludlow Amendment is accepted and made part of the constitution, it will absolutely not be analogous to disarmament, but to inclusion in the right to vote of those 18 years old. End quote. That is a democratic right. Trotsky's argument in this discussion was so persuasive, the other members were convinced. The Ludlow Amendment was not the subject of much debate at the stormy plenum of the SWP National Committee held a month later. It was not taken up until the last hours of the plenum. Then two motions were presented. Cannon's motion, quote, that the plenum finds that the political committee took a correct principled position on the Ludlow Amendment but made a tactical error in failing to give critical support to this movement without making any concessions, whatever, to its pacifist and illusory character. End quote. Motion by Carter, quote, that the plenum reverses the position of the political committee on the Ludlow Amendment and declares it incorrect, that the PC be instructed to issue a statement in support of a popular referendum on the question of war, with a critical declaration in reference to the pacifist and illusory tendencies in the pro Ludlow movement, end quote. Seven members spoke during the discussion, and then Cannon made a substitute motion for the whole, quote. The plenum finds that the political committee was correct in principled opposition to the passive resolutions contained in the Ludlow Amendment, an opposition that was fully justified. The PC nevertheless took a purely negative position, which prevented the party from utilising the entirely progressive sentiment of the masses who supported the idea of submitting the warmongers to the control of a popular referendum before the declaration of war. The plenum instructs the PC to correct its position accordingly, end quote. This substitute motion carried and the Carter motion was defeated, the vote not given. A month later, our paper printed a public NC statement reporting the change in the SWP's position on the Ludlow Amendment and explaining why. At this point, it could be said that the error was corrected and the differences liquidated. So completely that three months later, in August, nobody thought it was out of order for a political committee to send the National Committee members the copy of a draft written by Goldman for an improved version of the Ludlow Amendment that is, one free of the defects in Ludlow's bill, which we were to try to get some members of Congress to introduce so that we could use it in our anti-war propaganda and agitation. I have traced the course of this thing, perhaps in too much detail, because I think a study of mistakes of this kind, frankly recognised and correctly analysed, can be at least as useful educationally as a study of correct policies or actions. Everybody makes mistakes, even geniuses like Marx, Lenin and Trotsky. The Russian Revolution of 1917 would have been impossible if the Bolsheviks had not learned many valuable lessons from the defeat of 1905. In political mistakes are unavoidable, said Trotsky, what is reprehensible is clinging to mistakes and refusing to correct them. This, of course, does not apply to the Ludlow dispute, but the Ludlow thing was important methodologically, as Trotsky said in his letter to Canon, so it deserves further comment. Reading Trotsky's approach to the Ludlow Amendment, I am struck by how much more rounded and all-sided it was than the one we had at the time. This enabled him more effectively to select out the major elements of the problem. For example, he began with a concrete class analysis, taking off from the fact that the ruling class was opposed to the Ludlow Amendment, while the fact was subordinated in our analysis, which tended to centre on a secondary factor, the illusions which the Ludlow forces fostered. Of course, what the ruling class wants in a particular case need not always be conclusive. Sometimes they made mistakes too. And sometimes it is not even clear what the ruling class wants. That certainly was the case with the impeachment problem last year. But what the ruling class wanted on the Ludlow Amendment was both relevant and clear, and it fructified Trotsky's thinking. While for us the position of the ruling class was something of an embarrassment, which we didn't care to dwell on and didn't altogether explain, even poorly, concentrating instead on the question of illusions. Illusions and the necessity to combat them were a prominent feature not only of the Ludlow discussion, but of other questions facing the SWP at the time. This stems from the abiding obligation we have to help the masses overcome bourgeois ideology in all its forms and variants, including illusions about the nature of bourgeois democracy. Recently, for example, our propaganda and action around Watergate had to take into account and to include material to counteract the illusions widely generated about Congress, the courts and the Constitution. But here, as with everything else in politics, a sense of proportion is needed, and I'm afraid it was sometimes lacking. Sometimes, like today's TV housewife, who was driven frantic by the absence of sparkle on a drinking glass or the presence of a ring around her husband's collar, we were a little obsessed by the illusion factor, perhaps, quote, obsessed is too strong, perhaps a better word, is over-preoccupied. But the struggle against illusions is not an end in itself. It is only a means toward an end, and not the central means. Its weight varies from one situation to another, sometimes considerably. And the way in which we struggle against illusions is not uniform and unvarying in all situations. In one case, it is best done head-on. In another, a more indirect approach proves more effective. And since effectiveness is, or should be, a paramount factor, a distinction has to be made between merely making the record against Solutions, no matter how loudly and vehemently and setting into motion forces that actually help people to raise their political consciousness. We tended to throw all illusions into one bag marked dangerous, exposed at all costs. Trotsky was more selective, more discriminating. In a different context, in a 1930 pamphlet that will be in English later this year, he had occasion to refer to the consciousness, mood and expectations of the revolutionary workers in Russia at the time of the October Revolution. And there he discussed what he called their, quote, creative illusion in, quote, overestimating hopes for a rapid change in their fate, end quote. It was an underestimation of the effort, suffering and sacrifice they would be required to make before they would attain the kind of just, humane, social society they were fighting for. It was an illusion in the sense that between that generation and that kind of society lay civil war, imperialist invasion, famine and cannibalism, the rise of a privileged bureaucracy, totalitarian regimentation and terror, decimation in the Second World War and much more that they did not see. It was an illusion based on an underestimation of the difficulties that would face them after the workers took power in backward Russia, which would have been infinitely smaller if the revolution had succeeded in spreading to the rest of Europe. And it was creative, because the workers' expectations enabled them to deal the first powerful blow against the world capitalist system and open up the era of proletarian revolutions and colonial uprisings. The record shows that the Bolsheviks did not spend much time or energy combating such revolutions. They were too busy trying to imbue the masses with the determination to make the revolution. In any case, Trotsky was able to differentiate among illusions if he could designate some as creative. Even more important, he was able to distinguish different sides or aspects of an illusion, as in the Ludlow discussion. Instead of a single label on illusion or illusions connected with the Ludlow Amendment, he called attention to the fact that certain aspects were progressive at the same time that others were not. The idea that war can be abolished or prevented without ending the capitalist system that spawns war does not have much to recommend it from a Marxist standpoint. But if the spread of that idea leads masses of people into action to try to prevent the government from going to war or to set limits on its power to declare war, isn't that a good thing from the Marxist standpoint. Even if the idea that sets them into motion against the capitalist government is not scientific and is therefore wrong and illusory, isn't it good that it is progressive for them to conduct such a struggle? Isn't that precisely the way that they can learn what is wrong and illusory about their ideas on how to end war? When I read you the second position adopted by the political committee on the Ludlow Amendment in February 1938, after Trotsky's letter was read, you may recall that in one place Goldman's motion said, quote, the working class learned through experience, end quote. This was a commonplace in our movement. Everyone subscribed to it. But the difference was that Trotsky held that the workers' experience with a struggle for something like the Ludlow Amendment was exactly the thing that could help them to learn about and go beyond their illusion. While the political committee, even as it was saying, quote, the working class learns through experience, end quote, took the view that we should try to discourage the workers from having such an experience with the amendment, and that we should dissociate ourselves from the experience if they went ahead with it anyway. The PC view was that this is an illusion, therefore we can only expose and denounce it. Trotsky's view was that this is an illusion, but it has progressive potential. Therefore, without assuming any responsibility for the illusion, without hiding our belief that it is an illusion, but without making our belief that it is an illusion the major feature of our approach to it, therefore, because it has progressive potential, let us encourage and help the workers to fight against the government on the war question. Let us join this movement and become its best builders, because this is the most effective way of helping them to overcome some of their illusions about war and democratic capitalism. It seems to be the difference between the approach of narrow propagandism and the approach of revolutionary activism. In the first case, you write an article explaining, quote, the Marxian principles on war, end quote, and hand it out to those who are interested in such matters. You won't affect many people that way, but you have done your duty and presumably can sleep well. In the second case... You intervene in the class struggle, helping to set masses into motion against the ruling class or to provide bridges for those in motion from the elementary, one-sided and illusionary conceptions they they start out with towards better, more realistic and more revolutionary concepts about capitalism and war and how to fight them. I do think that the source of our error was, in a great part, the remnants of a narrow propagandism that prevailed in the first years of the left opposition in this country – when we were restricted almost entirely to trying to reach the ranks of the Communist Party with our written and spoken ideas. Subsequently, we consciously set out to transcend this phase with increasing success. But occasionally, especially when new problems were posed, we had a tendency to slip back. The transitional method that Trotsky recommended to us was precisely the thing we needed to enable us to say goodbye forever to such lapses. If it was not an era of propagandism, then it is hard to explain the thing Shackman said in Mexico that I have cited already. Quote, there is a great danger that in jumping into a so-called mass movement against war, pacifist in nature, the revolutionary education of the vanguard will be neglected. End quote. At first sight, this seems like a non sequitur. Why should jumping into a mass movement or only entering one with more dignity than the jumping provides, present a danger, a great danger, that the revolutionary education of the vanguard will be neglected. How does it follow? What is the possible connection? it doesn't make sense unless the reasoning is being done from the standpoint of propagandism where you feel that the most urgent task you have is to present your entire program without ambiguity or possibility of misrepresentation on all occasions a necessity that occurs to you because you lack confidence about the revolutionary education the ideological solidity of the vanguard that is of yourselves in such a case If you are not sure of it, the main thing becomes the strengthening of the revolutionary education of ideological conditions of the vanguard group and doing something about that seems more important, much more important than taking advantage of the opportunity to intervene in the class struggle. By contrast, let us consider how we would pose the same problem today after having absorbed the meaning of the transitional method. We would say, quote, here is a mass movement that we can enter where we can win over people to our revolutionary positions and help raise the consciousness of many more. It is a pacifist movement, which means that in order to work effectively there, our members must be well educated about the nature of pacifism, what's wrong with it, and how to counter its influence which means therefore that before we enter and after we enter we must make sure our members are immunised politically against pacifism if that is not already the case that is instead of neglecting we must increase the revolutionary education of the vanguard on this point end quote shakman counterposed mass work and revolutionary education of the vanguard we on the other hand combine them because not only the masses learn that way but we, the vanguard, do too. Methodologically, we also seem to be suffering from a confusion about the relation between principles and tactics. Principles are propositions embodying fundamental conclusions derived from theory and historical experience to govern and guide our struggle for socialism. Relating broadly to our goals, they set a framework within which we operate. Although they are not eternal, they have a long-range character and are not easily or often changed. In fact, we have essentially the same principles today that we had in 1938. The dictatorship of the proletariat, or the struggle for a worker state, as the form of state transitional between capitalism and socialism, that is a principle with us. Insistence on class struggle methods against class collaborationist methods, that is another. Unremitting opposition to pacifism in all its guises, because passivism is an obstacle to revolutionary struggle, that is a third. Tactics, on the other hand, are only means to an end. Only in this context, not meant to disparage them. Without the appropriate tactics, principles cannot be brought to life, so there is clearly an interdependence between principles and tactics. But tactics are subordinate, in the same way that means are subordinate to an end. They are good if they enhance and promote the principle, not good if they don't. In addition, tactics are flexible, adjustable, variable. They depend, or their applicability depends, on concrete circumstances. To advance a particular principle, tactic A may be best today, but it may have to be replaced by tactic B tomorrow morning, or tactic C tomorrow night. Meanwhile, the principle remains unchanged. Principle tells us to oppose passivism, but it does not tell us whether or not to participate in a certain mass movement. It only tells us that under all circumstances, whether participating or not, we should so function as to counterpose revolutionary ideas and influence to those of any pacifists. There is not a single tactic that follows from any principle After understanding and grasping the principle, we still have to consider tactics. And tactics, while they are subordinate to principles, have laws, logic and a domain of their own. Tactics must not, cannot be in violation of principle. No tactical considerations could ever get us to say that we think war can be abolished through a referendum vote. But tactics are not limited to formal reaffirmations of our principles. They are not worth much if that is all they are. What was the nature of the Ludlow Amendment problem? Was it for us a matter of principle or a matter of tactics? If the SWP in 1938 had any doubts about pacifism, any ambiguity about it, then the matter of principle would probably have been foremost. But if ever there was a party whose members had been trained, indoctrinated, drilled and virtually bred on hostility to pacifism, surely it was the SWP. I can testify to that personally. Long before I knew some of the most elementary ideas of Marxism, I have been taught about the dangers of pacifism. Let me try to suggest an analogy. Comrade Smith takes to the floor to propose that the branch should participate in a local election campaign by running our own candidates and explains not only the benefits that would accrue to us from such a campaign but also the facts demonstrating that we have forces and resources to run such a campaign effectively, etc. But I take to the floor to oppose Comrade Smith's proposal on the grounds that the workers have electoral illusions and that these illusions can only be reinforced and perpetuated if we, the revolutionary opponents of bourgeois electoralism, take part in these fraudulent elections. No, I say, our revolutionary principles forbid our participation in bourgeois elections and require that we must call on the workers to boycott the elections. Any other course would be in violation of our principled opposition to bourgeois parliamentarianism. Such a scene has never occurred at any SVP branch meeting, although it could Occur and probably does in some Maoist and other sectarian groups in this country. Something not too different occurred in the Fourth International as reached as as five years ago when the French Communist League ran a presidential campaign dominated by the theme that its main task was to combat the electoral solutions of the French workers. Such a scene has not occurred at any S3P meeting, but if it did occur, there would not be any lack of comrades new as well as old, who would point out that Comrade Smith had raised a tactical question and that instead of answering him on the level of tactics, I had switched the discussion to the level of principles, leaving aside the question of whether the principles I have invoked were at all relevant to the point at issue. Nobody in the sRB has ever done this, mix up principles and tactics in relation to the elections and our participation in them. But isn't that precisely what What happened in connection with the Ludlow Amendment? From the very beginning of the discussion in January, when Burnham proposed support for the amendment, all that was needed was an answer on the level of tactics, assuming that there was no difference on the level of principle. But Shackman, instead of giving a tactical answer, replied with a motion to criticise the amendment, quote, from a principled revolutionary standpoint, end quote. And even at the end of the discussion, at the plenum in April, Cannon's initial motion, later withdrawn, wanted to inform that the political committee had taken, quote, a correct principle position, end quote, on the amendment, quote, but had made a tactical error by not giving the movement critical support. But it was even worse than that, methodologically, in my opinion. When we are confronted with the need for a tactical decision, to be offered instead a correct principle position is to be offered, at best, an irrelevancy, and at worst, an evasion but in all cases not what the situation calls for politically. Pointing in such circumstances to the correctness of the principled position may provide us a measure of psychological consolation. See, we were only 50% wrong, but how much correctness can a principled position provide in real life if it is given as a substitute for a tactical problem? I think I've been justified in devoting so much time to the Ludlow dispute for at least three reasons. First, I think the details were needed because without them you would have only some generalisations and would lack the data through which to judge my conclusions. Second, second is that the problems posed in that dispute related rather closely to other questions of importance. For example, there was the slogan of the workers and farmers government in the transitional programme, which more recently we have shortened to the slogan of the workers government in this country. The stenograms show that the SWPers kept putting questions about this to Trotsky. Did he mean by workers' and farmers' government the same thing that we meant by the dictatorship of the proletariat? Looking behind which was an implied question. If the workers' and farmers' government means anything different than dictatorship of the proletariat don't we have the obligation to state this very forcibly to emphasise it in order to counteract the illusion that the workers may have in anything less than the dictatorship of the proletariat In tomorrow's talk I shall show additional evidence of the prominence in the thinking of the SWP leadership of the illusion factor as well as more about the confusion over tactics and principles but my point is the clarification of the issues involved in the Ludlow dispute helped the SWP to better understand the transitional programme and its method as a whole and without that clarification if we had continued Continued to cling to the SWP's first and second positions on the Ludlow Amendment, what do you think would have happened decades later when the mass movement against the Vietnam War began to develop in this country? One thing you can be sure of is that we could never have played the role we did in the movement if we had not previously learned the lessons from the Ludlow question through the transitional programme discussions. In that case, the SWP would be considerably different from what it is today, and I don't mean better. The other reason I feel justified in giving so much time to the Ludlow dispute is because it helps us to view our party, its caters, its programme and its methods the same way we try to view everything else, historically. Sometimes there is a tendency to think they suddenly developed out of nowhere, fully formed and finished with results and acquisitions that can all be taken for granted. But it wasn't like that at all. We got where we are ideologically, politically and organisationally as a result of a good deal of sweat, blood, sleepless nights, trial and error and struggle. And that's how it will be as we continue to develop further. We have the advantage over our predecessors of not having to plough up the same ideological and methodological ground that they covered. If we really absorb the lessons they learned and the methods methods they pioneered, then we should be able to go beyond them and plough up new ground. And we certainly can do better. More realistically, we understand how they did their work. You stick your trousers on and your last bit of makeup. Your last coat button falls away Floating through life another day One shoe-legs than the other people The bus shouting at one another Can of two, boy, I'm a mess Call, get that bird in the lyrics. Lair-